So I think you really, really, really have to learn how to be um, a negotiator and to learn how to compromise. Hello, and welcome to the Breathe Easy podcast, hosted by myself, Dominic Pepper. In this podcast, we ask an expert clinician, teacher, or researcher to share their insights about career opportunities in the fields of critical care, pulmonary medicine, or sleep medicine. And for today, we go to Baltimore to discuss negotiating the interview process. You have to know if you're really a leader. You have to know if you're a facilitator. You have to know if you're a doer or a follower. You have to know if you're a thinker. You have to know if you're a worker bee. Uh, before we get started, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I'm, I'm Daniel Herr. I'm now the Chief of Surgical Critical Care at the University of Maryland Hospital Center. And um, I'm also the Medical Director of the Cardiac Surgery ICU. In your interviews, what are the common mistakes that fellows make during the applications and how should these uh, mistakes be avoided? Fellows really make a really big mistake by not casting a large net. I think when you're looking for jobs, um, I know, oh, my my wife lives in this town or I, I grew up in this town or I really want to live in a, work in a city. Um, but I think you really need to cast that net pretty wide because the practice of critical care across the United States is incredibly variable. Some of the things you have to know about your personality is that you have to know if you're really a leader. You have to know if you're a facilitator. You have to know if you're a doer or a follower. You have to know if you're a thinker. You have to know if you're a worker bee. And the other problem is I think if fellows don't allow enough time, they don't allow enough time, you should start looking for your job 12 to 18 months beforehand. I find fellows oftentimes are very panicky. Either they haven't done it early enough or they just can't find the right job. So start early. I mean, don't don't underestimate yourself. Don't put, if you're using a recruiter, don't put too much faith in your recruiters. They'll find the opportunities, but don't trust them. They work for the client, not you. Believe it or not, they are trying to get their positions filled. They are going to get a percentage of the hospital you're going to. They're not going to get a percentage from you. So be careful when you're working with recruiters. Um, please don't rush into accepting the first uh, good offer. Um, you know, it may be a great offer, but, you know, you got to look around. you got to wait. And then along with the with the offer, make sure you don't tell them what you want the first time around. Let them tell you. But I got to say, when I interview a person, I look for those qualities that I look for to be a great critical care doc. I look for a good personality. I look for somebody who could laugh. I look for somebody who has outside interest. I look for somebody that knows who they are. And a very important thing is that they have to remember that they're looking for the job. So they need to take some control over the interview, not tell the guy everything, answer all the questions before he asks the question, but actually understand that you're interviewing that job just as much as that job's interviewing you. Um, you mentioned that you're the Chief of Surgical Critical Care Services at the University of Maryland. Can you tell me your story about uh, how you uh, eventually uh, achieved this appointment? Um, you, because you've had a lot of experience in leadership roles over the last 20 to 30 years. So so one never knows uh, why you get picked for the, the roles you get picked in in life. I think 
one of the reasons I probably got this position was because of my um, varied interest as I came up through my career. I started out, like I said, as an internist. I started out as a fellowship in the days when there was only uh, one critical care fellowship, essentially, and that was the one for pulmonary critical care. Um, I didn't care to do uh, pulmonary, um, and I felt that uh, I still wanted to be an internist. So I was lucky enough to get accepted to the Maryland Shock Trauma Fellowship Program, which actually took internists. Immediately after that, I uh, went up to Sloan Kettering and got an appointment as a critical care a fellowship up there as a critical care physician also. So, And most of those patients at uh, Sloan Kettering were also surgical. So my desire to take care of surgical critical care patients um, leaped over my desire to take care of medical critical care patients. And I think that really set me apart different type of um, critical care doc coming through the ranks. I went off to the Washington Hospital Center for then for the next 26 years. And at that hospital, which was a rather large private hospital, um, but had um, an interesting situation in which all the critical care physicians were internists that ran the surgical ICUs. So through that, my experience blossomed quite a bit. Um, I actually had the opportunity to do quite a bit of neurocritical care. I did a lot of trauma critical care. I did um, a lot of cardiac surgery critical care. So I came to the University of Maryland about six years ago, and I was picked out to come here mainly to be the medical director or the director of the cardiac surgery ICU. Through that, um, I got to know the university a little bit better. And I was working at that time for Tom Scalia, and he told me that the Chief of Surgical Critical Care Services was available, and I told him I would like to do that job. I saw that job as an opportunity to put my experiences and challenge myself to bring together the white towers of an academic medical center. So when you ask me um, what, what how I got to here, is that's a long-winded story, but I think it's because I stood out a little bit differently than as an internist in critical care in the fact that I worked in surgical ICUs and in the fact that um, I had a very strong interest in trying to um, bring together different ICUs under one um, system. You mentioned that you had several experiences um, as a resident or fellow uh, that informed your decision uh, to pursue critical care. Would you like to share them with us? My first Rotation was actually at uh, the Bronx-Lebanon Hospital in the ICU, um, so it kind of piqued my interest right away. The other thing that, uh, not even before my residency, I was an EMT when I was 16 years old. Yes, you could do those things when you were 16 years old. Um, You've achieved considerable success in your career. What skills, attributes um, does a great critical care physician need um, in order to, to achieve success? Wow. I, I think the most important thing is that I always find uh, very difficult for the new fellows or the new attendings to learn, and that is you're still you're pretty smart. You just finished your boards, but you're still not as smart as some of the people that have been there for a while. So I think you really, really, really have to learn how to be um, a negotiator and to learn how to compromise. So the only people you have to rely on 
is the people you work with on a daily basis. So it's very important to have those people um, part of your uh, confidants, to have them um, part of your social life sometimes, um, to have your team be really a true team. Um, I know that sounds like a cliche, but in order to be successful, it's the person standing beside you you have to trust the most. And they're also the people that you'll get your most rewards from. They're the people who say, hey, nice job on that code, or hey, nice diagnosis, didn't think of that. They're the people that are always around you. So you really have to listen to those people, and you really have to understand what they're trying to do and where they're coming from. When a fellow is appointed as a new faculty uh, member, what advice would you give them for their first six months of employment? Yes. So so the first thing I would tell you is, um, you know, just think about what, what's going to happen uh, when you come in. Um, here are some real good facts that you should just accept for yourself is, is one, that you are completely starting over again. How many times have we done this in our lives? We started graduate school and we started medical school and we're always at the bottom of the heap. Well, guess what? You're at the bottom of the heap again. So you just accept the fact that you're starting over. Um, you have to understand that the, everybody thinks that you're complete. You're now completely responsible for the patient. You you you, you, you kind of have an attending backing you up, but trust me, when you're a new guy in the block, they they uh, they put it on you. They give you a couple extra shifts, and you're stuck at night by yourself. It, it's it's you got some job jitters. Um, yes, the buck stops with you. So you have to learn how to understand that you are going to be responsible. Um, you pretty much don't know anybody, um, which is always a, which is always a problem, um, and you have no idea really how the system works. You came. Every hospital has its own culture. I guarantee you, and you have to sit down and really think about that culture. Um, you have no idea how to get things done, and who can get them done for you. Um, and you should certainly feel overwhelmed. I always tell the new fellows, give it six months. It, it'll get better. Um, as far as as far as you know what what they what they should need to know and what they should do, I, I think you know the first thing is you have to remember to be humble. Um, it goes along with the whole idea of being a good a good intensivist, good critical care doc. Um, don't let them make you let them do rounds the first day. Please don't let them make you do rounds by yourself at least. Um, where I came from at the Washington Hospital Center, we brought people in. We wouldn't let them loose for at least a month or two months. Um, we'd always have an attending at their side, um, helping them do rounds. I know that can be a little bit intimidating to the new guy, but I can trust me. If you ask them to do that, um, I think it's a it's a it's a right and a privilege that you have um, to ask them to help you um, with your rounds to find things. Find a partner. Always find a partner. Um, find somebody to commiserate. Find somebody that's been there for a year or two, a younger guy. Um, he'll help you through a lot of the, the ins and outs. Um, and oh, just don't forget to introduce you to everyone. They don't know you. They don't know who you are. And make sure when you introduce yourself, you smile. It's really important. Watch and listen, like I said before. And write everything down. Don't say, hey, we did if there's something different that they do there that you did differently at your place. Don't say, hey, we did this at my place. Number one, it's not your place anymore. And also write it down. Just write it down and go home and think about it. 
and then find out how you're going to affect change if you think it's really the wrong way to do it. For, but don't do it on rounds. It will get you nowhere. It will isolate you. On the other hand, if you're really smart and you have a good idea, you can certainly say, you know, it'd be really cool to try to do this some other way um, and learn the unwritten rules. There are so many unwritten rules when you move from one hospital to another. The cultures are different. So really pay attention to what's going on around you. Sit in the lunchroom with the staff. Sit with the charge nurse. Get to know everybody. Which brings me to another really important thing. Get to know who's in charge. Get to know, actually, you should introduce yourself at some point to the CNO, the chief nursing officer. Don't be afraid. Your physician, they, they would love you to come say hi. Make sure you know who the chief medical officer is. Ask it. Make sure you know who the chief financial officer is. Most importantly, make sure you know who's in charge of the pharmacy. Make sure you know who's in charge of products. Because I guarantee you, if you know those people and things are going wrong and you're not getting the drugs you need, one call, phone call is worth a million. Um, even though you're the junior guy, there's nobody that says you can't pick up the phone and say, hey, can I sit down and talk to you for a little while? I'm new here. I'm trying to understand how the pharmacy works, trying to understand what drugs you buy, how you buy them. That will take you a million miles in a new job. What do you believe the field of critical care will look like in the next 10 to 15 years? I don't know. I, well, I'm, I'm I'm nervous about a couple of things. I, I'm very nervous about shift work. Um, I When I sign up here in clinical, I still do about 30 weeks a year of clinical, believe it or not, because I love it. But I also, I put myself on for two weeks straight. Um, second week's a heck of a lot easier than the first week. But I think consistency is huge in critical care. And I'm not seeing it like I used to, and that bothers me a little bit. But yet I see critical care moving very much towards shift work. Um, I see a big change, I think, coming down the road in the subspecialties of critical care. Um, I think neurocritical care would be the best example. Um, I lived through that whole thing. Um, and I think I think trauma critical care is another place, I think. So we're going to have all these subspecialties. And I think the big one, the big open door that if you train well in your fellowship, I think is the cardiac ICU, cardiac surgery ICU. Um, I think the newer surgeons, cardiac surgeons coming out are becoming more dependent upon intensivists to help them. I think the patients are much sicker. So therefore, they have a lot of internal medicine diseases in which we can be helpful at the bedside. But I think going along with that is that when you're doing your fellowship, if you're going to go branch out into these new areas of critical care, I call them new, um, you're going to have to think about what fellowship you even want to go to um, or what you want to do during your fellowship. Um, I would suggest that uh, here at the University of Maryland, a little plug, but our critical care docs, our neurocritical care docs, do trauma ICU. They do trauma. They actually do the trauma team. They actually come to the cardiac surgery ICU, and they are part of the cardiac surgery ICU team. They rotate through every ICU in our hospital. Um, I think it's going to be really important, and I think that is the future of having more critically care, critical care trained people in other things besides pulmonary. I think that's going to be incredibly important. Cardiac, neuro, trauma, 
maybe an emergency surgery critical care, certainly surgical critical care. I now have five internists doing my surgical ICUs. I have four internists doing cardiac surgery. Um, I think the other big thing coming down the road is, and I think the fellowship programs are changing, but I'm very impressed with the ERIM programs. Um, I think these kids are uh, doing a pretty darn good job. So I think uh, the fellowships are actually going to change a lot. That's good. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, Well, I I really appreciate speaking to you. A big thank you to Dr. Daniel Herr for joining me. And thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper, the American Thoracic Society.